If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of Isaiah. We are in Isaiah chapter 27 this evening. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Stuart has two or three in his hand, and and, uh, I'd love to give you one so you can follow along with us. Isaiah chapter 27. We're going to look at chapter 27 and 28 this evening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to uh, open up your word and to know, Lord, as we gather here, Lord, you are here in our midst and it's your desire to speak to our hearts and to teach us, instruct us in your word, Lord, to let us know what you have plans for our future, Lord, as we see it in your word, but also, Lord, the plans that you have for our presence, for our present, Lord. We thank you for this time together, Lord. We pray that you continue to bless it, Lord. Thank you for uh, just a sweet time of worship. We can just open our hearts to you and sing of your goodness and, and grace and love and, and uh, inviting your spirit here to move in our hearts. And that is our prayer this evening, Lord. Uh, teach us, we pray, as we go through your word. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, commentators have called or labeled, if you would, uh, chapters 24 through 27 of Isaiah, Isaiah's Apocalypse. And the reason for that is because if you look at those chapters, you see back in, in the very beginning of chapter 24, there's a description that Isaiah gives, and it says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And so we get an idea, okay, this isn't just an every, every old day thing that's happening here. This is an apocalypse. This is something that's happening that's huge. And Isaiah goes on to describe their terror awaiting the people uh, who live on the earth during the time of the end, during the great tribulation period. He went on to say in chapter 24, verse 17 through 19, he says, Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up in the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are shaken, and the earth is violently broken, the earth is split open, the earth is shaking, shaken exceedingly. And we, you see the, the cataclysmic events taking place, and, and we looked at how the Lord also will be punishing the rebellious angels, what we just read in that section right there, and as well as the people who rejected Jesus Christ. Then we know that Jesus will will reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And this is described in great detail in chapters 25 and 26. And now we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 27. Isaiah begins with, in that day. Now, in what day? Well, the day of the Lord, the great tribulation. We're back in the tribulation. Though, praise God, we're not physically in the tribulation. We just can read about it. Verse 1, in that day, the Lord with, with his severe word, let me start over. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, according to Revelation 13, verse 1, this is a reference to the Antichrist and the devil that is behind the Antichrist. Revelation 13, 1 says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Here Isaiah calls him the Leviathan, or the fleeing serpent. Now the serpent, we know, is one of the first characters to show up in Scripture. 
If you recall, God had just created all things and brought Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden. And there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And he goes on to deceive the woman, introducing sin and bringing about that curse on creation. And of course, we know that this is the devil. Now, what's interesting to me is that we always equate the serpent with the snake. You know, I I think maybe that's why I don't like snakes, never will like snakes. But but the fact is, there's several Hebrew words for snake and serpent, and they're all used interchangeably with dragon, serpent, even sea monster. So I think it's possible that a serpent, the devil, could be more like a dragon or like a, a dinosaur-type creature. I don't know if that's a, a word, dinosaur-type. Um, after all, in, in Revelation 20, verse 2, uh, calls him the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan. That certainly would explain um, Isaiah's use of the word Leviathan, that twisted serpent, to describe him. Now, we know the Leviathan was actually an, uh, a creature in ancient times. The Lord describes this creature in its entirety in Job chapter 41. It's described as this, this swimming animal, impervious to, to being caught with hooks or harpoons or clubs or arrows or slings or spears because of its protected double armor that it has uh, around its body with no gaps in it whatsoever. It speaks about how the teeth is just terrifying and its belly was covered with sharp edges and had a strong neck and was able to rise itself up higher than the trees. And it also breathed fire. You know, oh, come on, Tom, really? Well, Job forty-one nineteen, out of his mouth goes burning light, sparks of fire shoot out. And before you start thinking, yeah, right, come on, fire shooting out. You know what? That is anatomically possible. You know, maybe the barn... Bombardia beetle has two small chambers, and maybe you've heard of this, of chemicals on the tip of its abdomen. And when the beetle feels threatened, it forces these two chemicals into this mixing chamber in its body. Then it's expelled. And this chemical, you know, can, can uh, combine to form a highly corrosive acid. It's not fire, but it's pretty close. And that's just a little small thing, so I don't know, it can't do so much damage, you know, to, to your eye. But, you know, to a predator its own size, it could probably do some, some damage to it. Now, imagine that on the scale of something the size of a large dinosaur with that capability. I mean, Leviathan, that huge, and able to have this fire. I mean, it could be possible that some dinosaurs or dragons may have been able to do something along the same lines. Well, in their case, the result of those chemicals would have been to produce a flame. So it does seem possible that this form of fire-breathing dragon or Leviathan, you know, existed. Now, I, I went online before the study tonight. I tried to get you a picture of that, and they were just all too creepy to look at. And they, Some of the artists, they're just like, okay, this is ridiculous. I mean, they, you know, this type of thing. But when they listen to this tape, they'll never know what, what this type of thing means, will they? Whatever sort of dinosaur-like serpentine creature this Leviathan was, Isaiah uses its name to describe the devil. In the same way that Peter uses the, a lion in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The devil is not, you know, the Leviathan any more than he's a lion. But Isaiah likens him to that creature. We know he's actually a fallen, you know, angelic creation of God. But he also is called the twisted serpent. The word twisted can also be defined as crooked or perverted. 
Is that not so true of our enemy? Man, he's just he's perverted. Anything that is good, you know, the devil is there seeking to twist it and to pervert it. I mean, look at the internet, look at the TV, the technology. So much can be used for good, yet Satan is right there twisting it, you know, you know, perverting it. So the Lord here speaks of this crooked, perverted Leviathan lion-like destruction. In verse 1, he says, In that day with a severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. He will slay the reptile that is in the sea. So when Christ returns to the earth, he's going to slay that reptile, that serpent. How? Look at, well, don't look at Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3. I'll read it to you. You can look it up later. It says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3. You see, Satan's going to be behind the persecution of the Jews during the tribulation period. And this part of the victory that Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 27 is how God is going to take care of that dragon that devil, that Leviathan who is persecuting the Jews. So that when Jesus returns, Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years and then set loose afterwards for a brief period of time, which afterwards, according to Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I say a hearty amen to that. But I love how Isaiah mentions the method by which the devil will be defeated. Notice it says, with the Lord's severe sword, great and strong. I mean, the sword is the word of God. You know, Paul spoke of it in Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And Jesus is, is, is seen uh, with the, you know, his word proceeding from his mouth when he speaks in Revelation 1.16, where it says, out of his mouth went a, a sharp two-edged sword. So that's two ads, and, and he's going to speak forth, really, judgment. Hebrews uh, describes it as this in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thought and intents of the heart. The sword pierces, it, it judges, it kills or it heals, it delivers or it destroys. The sword will deal a death blow to the devil, but can also distribute life to those who hear it and obey it. The sword is the word of God. And Jesus, with just a word, is going to destroy the devil. Okay, look at verses 2 and 3. In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I keep it night and day. Now, God has established a, a standard of, of interpretation back in chapter 5. He spoke of a vineyard which he had been lovingly cared for but had borne no fruit. Now we know that that vineyard often speaks of, of the nation of Israel. Now he talked about what happened to the vineyard as a result. And then he explained what he's talking about. However, here in chapter 27, this is speaking of the kingdom age, the, the millennium. And, and the, 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 it's a fruitful and lovely vineyard because the Lord is there in the midst. And, and I love it. it. says, I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment. You know, the Lord is there always to satisfy our souls. I mean, He is that, that living water that satisfies our souls. He, he waters us. How? Well, three ways. He waters us, we know, through His Word. 
Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates it day and night. And he says, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall never wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So, so we know that he waters us through his word. We also know that he waters us through his Holy Spirit working in our lives. We remember in John seven thirty seven through 39 where it says that on the last day of that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he waters us through his word. He waters us through his Holy Spirit. And finally, he waters us through those who minister to us. Think about this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 to 8, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So neither is he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. And he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So we are watered, you know, refreshed through the Word, refreshed through, through a, a, a Holy Spirit, refreshed through others as we talk and we share with one another. Are you thirsty this evening? Do you, do you, are you going to the right place to find that refreshment, that drink? I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt, hurt it. I keep it night and day. In other words, God's Word is saying, I will protect you. You know that? You know that God is protecting you this evening. We're told in Psalm 121, verse 3 and 4, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. I read one commentator. He put it this way. Think of getting up in the morning and the Lord audibly speaking to you. He says this. This is what God would say. He would say, good morning, I'm God. Today I will be handling all of your problems. Please remember that I do not need your help. If the devil happens to deliver a situation to you that you cannot handle, do not attempt to resolve it. Kindly put it in the SFJTD, something for Jesus to do box. It will be addressed in my time, not yours. Once the matter is placed in the box, do not hold on to it or remove it. Holding on or removal will only delay the resolution of your problem. If it is a situation that you think you are capable of handling, please consult me in prayer first to be sure that it is the proper resolution. Because I do not sleep, nor do I slumber, there is no need for you to lose any sleep. Rest, my child. If you need to contact me, I am only a prayer away. Have a nice day. I like that. I mean, that, that fits. Because God doesn't sleep. We don't have to be afraid during the day or during the night. We're told in Psalm 91, verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand is at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. A lot of people failing. It doesn't have to be you or me. Well, the Lord continues through Isaiah. Look at verses 4 through 7. The Lord says, Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud, and fill the face of the world with fruit. As he struck Israel, as he struck those who struck him, or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In other words, you can't put a barbed wire fence up to keep God out. And during the millennial reign of Christ, God is still omnipresent. God does not change. It's foolish to think that you can hide anything from God or think that God doesn't see. Yet here the Lord says, fury is not in me. 
Now, although God is going to come back, Jesus Christ will come back to this earth in wrath, His wrath will be emptied upon those who rejected Christ. He'll have no more anger towards the people of Israel. But anyone who tries to make war against him will be burned completely. Although we've quoted this passage a number of times lately, I think it bears repeating. Again, during the millennium, Satan's going to be bound. Jesus Christ will rule and reign in righteousness for that thousand years. During that time, if there's one that, because of their evil heart, attempts to do evil, it'll be immediately dealt with by the Lord. There'll be no stopping the Lord. Then at the end of the millennium, when the devil is released, there will be that some nations that will actually follow the devil to war against God one last time. But think about it. Who really can come against God in battle? That's what Isaiah is saying. Oh, come on. What's God saying? Who, who can come against me in battle? Who would set briars and thorns against me? The Lord says, I would burn them together. Yet clearly the Lord is saying, it's a choice. Those born during the millennial reign of Christ, they're going to have to make. In fact, verse 5 says that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. I mean, it's so obvious that it's much better to be at peace with the Lord than to be at war with him that, that the Lord repeats what he says twice in this verse. Then verse 6, he says, Those who come he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, I like that verse because we're already seeing that partially fulfilled today. Do you know that Israel is one of the leading greenhouse food exporting countries in the world? That country exports 1.3 billion worth of agricultural products every year, including farm produce as well as 1.2 billion worth of agricultural inputs and technology. Citrus fruits are Israel's major agricultural export. In fact, they, they, they produce vast quantities also of flowers for export. Flowers exports in, in 2000 exceeded $50 million. So certainly we, we see as it's Israel's blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, verse 8 through 11, the Lord deals with Israel again. He says, In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all of the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. Yet the fortified cities will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its bows are withered, they will be broken off. The woman come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. In the past, God has completely destroyed nations who were mortal enemies of Israel. But when Israel was in sin... He did not wipe them out. He did, of course, drive them out of the land, but they were merely expelled. They weren't exterminated. And the future really holds much of the same. You see, during the Great Tribulation period, there's going to be, they're going to be uh, driven from the land into the hiding as the Antichrist, after three and a half years into the Tribulation, will seek to destroy them. And once again, God will have allowed the Jews to be driven from the land. It will be for the same purpose as it's, as it's always been, to bring them to repentance. Now, in their exile the Jews will realize that their forefathers rejected the true Messiah. They'll be ashamed to realize that they've nearly been deceived into believing that the Antichrist was the Messiah. And we know that he's going to order the abomination of desolation to, to be worshipped as God in that newly rebuilt temple. This will cause them to cry out to, to Jesus, which will lead to their forgiveness. Like Zechariah 12.10 tells us of this time. It says there, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who had died. 
they realize Jesus is their Messiah and, and they, they realize what they have done and how they rejected Him. And they repent. You see, through their final exile, the price of their sin will be paid. They will finally recognize Jesus as Messiah, receive the divine pardon for their sin. Now Paul tells us that that's been God's plan all along. Romans 11.25 tells us, For I desire, brethren, that you should not be ignorant, but blindness in part has come uh, to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now the idolaters, on the other hand, will not be forgiven. Verse 11 says, Therefore he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. Verse 12, And it should come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you'll be gathered by one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they, will, they who are outcast in the land of Egypt shall worship the Lord and the Holy Mount at Jerusalem. Now Isaiah has told us about this back in chapter 11, and how he would gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And, and Jesus also, if you, if you recall, talked about the same event. Matthew 24. Verse 30 and 31, uh, Jesus said this, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So one thing that doesn't stand out in Matthew's gospel there about this, this passage, when you compare it to Isaiah 27, 12, you see something else. It's that event where Jesus is sending out his angels to gather the elect together one by one, it says, from one end of heaven to the other. That's clearly not the rapture of the church, which happens to all of us in the twinkling of the eye. This is, is God carefully plucking each one as he, you know, each grain gathered individually, bringing him into the holy mountain of Jerusalem. So that's at the end of the great tribulation period that God will gather his elect, all those alive that have been, had their sins forgiven and have not taken the mark of the beast, so gather them in Jerusalem. Okay, chapter 28. We're making good time. Chapter 28 through chapter 20, or 35, it's going to be a big stretch, it basically describe judgment for the Jews and Assyrians, even while making promises for Israel's future. So let's start chapter 28. Look at the first four verses. Chapter 28 starts with a woe. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord is a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hell and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. Now, Ephraim was a tribe of Israel whose inheritance in the Promised Land was in the north. God often used the name to describe to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, sin in the northern king was running rampant. Kingdom was running rampant and continually unrepentant. And their lack of repentance led to this blatant pride uh, and, and, and the lack of fear of God led to this blatant pride as well. And this went all the way up, to, up the line to the king. They were all disobedient. They all presumptuous, you know, against the Lord. So the Lord is promising destruction here. And, and he says it will be like a fading flower, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it's still in its hand. Now the first fruit that he's talking about would be like the fig trees. I mean, because they normally produce, you know, the ripe fig is, is sometimes ripe around August. But a few pieces of that fig, a few pieces of fruit would ripen around June, and it was considered a delicacy. 
And that's why it says he eats it up while it's still in his hand. Man, it's gone fast. Let me tell you, I, I love figs. And, and you know that. You know I was going to say something about that. And when he had that fig tree and I'd come home and had that fig there, man, I just, oh, man, I couldn't even get into the house. Oh, man, I'm just going to eat that. You know, is there another one? I'd eat those. And it'd be gone fast. But see, that's what Isaiah is saying here. The beauty of the northern kingdom, it's going to be gone fast. Look at verses 5 and 6. And that day the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Now keep in mind who God says he's going to destroy. Verse 3 said, The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. God is saying that judgment is coming to the proud drunkards of Ephraim. So who's left? Well, obviously who's left are the humble. Are the humble. And see, all throughout the ages, God has always preserved a remnant, a faithful people in the midst of the wicked. And here Isaiah is promising them that God will not forget them. Now when we we talk about a remnant, you know, I think so often we assume that, that that remnant is made up of those religious people, you know, those that are often respected by the, you know, by the community, all the priests and the prophets, those guys, are, I mean, they're going to be a part of the remnant because they're really keeping their eyes on the Lord. But look, look what God says about these guys. Look at verse 7 and 8. He said, But they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's nasty. The priests and the prophets are supposed to be pointing people to Jesus Christ, or to God, but instead they were getting drunk while they were serving in ministry. They're wasted while they're, they're sacrificing animals. They're making decisions and carrying on the role of a priest and a prophet while they're, they're drunk as a skunk. In fact, they were so often drunk that they were vomiting right on the sanctified tables we read there. They made the entire place unclean. See, Isaiah is saying here, listen, God has great things for those who humble themselves, for those who, who seek Him and seek to live godly lives. But don't, who, those who don't, those who take the things of God for granted and not seriously, he says, they're only hurting themselves. They miss out on what God has for them because of their own desires for alcohol and the craving of alcohol. A Japanese proverb says this, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. I believe that. So the Lord asks in verse 9 and 10. After this, he says, well, whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So with, 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 with every adult in the northern kingdom, too sinful to repent, too drunk to stand, Isaiah asked the question, well, who will God teach knowledge to? Who, who can he teach them to understand the message? In other words, who is left that God can teach his word to and who is left that will be able to teach others his word? And Isaiah points out, the only ones left are babies, and they've and they're just been weaned from their, their moms. They're not old enough to comprehend systematic theology. They're not old enough to, to comprehend basic Bible teachings. Listen, God's Word does require some basic intelligence to understand it. 
It is beyond the grasp of babies drinking milk and beyond the ability of confused drunkards to read and understand. Now, Paul would uh, you know, come against the church in Corinth because they weren't growing in the Word. He said to them in 1 Corinthians 3, 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For now, until now, you are not able to receive it. Even now, you're still not able. Because of sin in the church and what's going on, they weren't able to receive the truth. So you see, even the writer of Hebrews, who I personally believe to be Paul, said the same thing in Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Listen, it's not rocket science. God has made his word accessible to, to anyone who desires to learn it. He says that he's given it to us in an orderly fashion. If we simply read it line upon line, precept upon precept, we'll quickly pick up the basics. I tell you, that's why I am sold out on expository teaching. Just what the Lord says here. For precept must be upon precept, uh, line upon line, uh, line upon line, here a little, there a little. See, teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, cover to cover, is the best way I know to get people quickly acquainted with God's Word. It's the best way I know to to allow the the, the Holy Spirit of God to speak through the Word of God to touch each person's life, no matter where they're at and what's going on in their life. God speaks through His Word in that way. So no no matter where we are in Scripture, you're going to learn about God's nature. You're going to learn about God's plan. You're going to hear that God hates sin but loves a sinner. He's established that perfectly in a perfect way of learning his word. Then he goes on, look at verses 11 through 13. For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause to weary to rest, the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they will not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go back and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. See, what Isaiah is saying, what the Lord is saying, is not everyone wants to receive the Word of God. And some people, they'll continue to listen, even while their hearts are hardening moment after moment. They'll not take it in. For those, really, to them, the Word is, is unintelligible. To them, it's like the stammering lips and another tongue, in verse 11 it says. Some people are just so so stubborn that even the simplest truth is beyond their comprehension. It, it makes no sense to someone who's, who has chosen to harden their hearts against the Word of God. Now, we know, you know, you know at that point, if they're unregenerate, they, they really can't understand the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God that sets to work in their lives in order for their eyes to be open to understand the Word of God. Look at verse 14 and 15. Therefore, hear the Word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said... We have made a covenant with death, and the Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and are under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. How had the Jews made a covenant with death? Well, it was a bargain they'd made that would lead to death, or, or you know, hopefully prevent their death. It's probably that Isaiah is not quoting them directly. It's more likely that they'd been boasting about their new alliance. See, instead of relying on God's direction, God's protection. Uh, you know, when he said, I, I'm the one you need to turn to for rest and safety against a coming judgment, they had turned to Egypt for assistance. We talked about this briefly before. The Jews were now touting with their alliance with Egypt. They were thinking, hey, we're safe. If the Assyrians come down to take us over, you know, man, we got, 
Egypt. They're going to come. They, they have our back. Or the Babylons are going to come to take us over. Or, you know, rather, not the Assyrians, the Babylons. They got our back. But the covenant they had made had sealed their fate because it was a covenant with death. Egypt would be no help for them when the Babylonians came in. In fact, Jeremiah tells us that when the Babylonians were sieging Jerusalem, Egypt came marching in to rescue them. Then the Babylonians turned around, turned from Jerusalem, and went to face the Egyptian army and went after them. And at that point, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army fled and they went home, really retreated. And they left, you know, Jerusalem alone. And so then the Babylonians stopped chasing the Egyptians and then turned back to finish the job in Jerusalem. The point is, the Jews should have made their covenant with God, not with Egypt. Man will fail. God never does. Verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. I love this. You know, here in Isaiah chapter 28, you know, we're we're seeing Jesus Christ. God promises that in the future, once the Jews return from the Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem, he would send the cornerstone. The Bible makes it very clear. The cornerstone uh, God referring to is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul, talking about God's household, spoke of it in Ephesians 2, verse 20 through 22. In the New Living Translation, he said this, Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. So Jesus is the cornerstone. We're, we're, we're built upon Jesus Christ. Now, why would Jesus be called a cornerstone? Well, if you understand ancient times, the cornerstone was the starting point for all building above the foundation. It was that, that stone that had to be in place, that had to be almost perfect. It was complete, complete, placed completely level and precise alignment where it needed to be set. So that the rest of the project, as they were building from that, uh, it would be, you know, they would go from that point of measurement. It was the basis for uniformity and the standard for any alignment. In the same way, Jesus is righteous. He is just. His line is right there. He is perfect. He's lined up. His life will serve as the basis for determining righteous and justice. And we as believers are carefully joined together in Him, building a holy temple for the Lord. Now we know, unfortunately for the Jews, the builders would reject this cornerstone. Peter tells us about that after a healing took place of a lame man. Peter begins to explain to the elders and the priests and the scribes and the many high-ranking priests and Jews at that time what had happened. Listen to what he said in Acts 4, 10, and 11. He says, Let it be known to you all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus was rejected. And in fact, he knew it would happen. Matthew 23, 37 and 38. Remember when Jesus cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would rather gather you as a children, gather children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. See, once the cornerstone established the standard, the Jews of Jerusalem were now liable. They were accountable. But they rejected the cornerstone, crucified him. That brings God's judgment down upon them and on their city as well. Look at verses 17 through 21. He goes on. Also I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hell will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. 
Your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass over. And by day and by night, it will be a terror just to understand the report. For the bed is too short to stretch out on and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. For the Lord will rise up at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. It's interesting that Isaiah describes their problem as the bed is too short to stretch out on and the covering is so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. Have that happened to you before when you got to sleep or maybe you're sleeping over someone's house and the bed is just too short and your feet hang over the edge and it's happened to me before or, you know, and the covering is so narrow that no one can wrap himself in it. Or maybe your wife has took all the covers or your husband took all the covers and you're cold there. But here's this picture of a bed that's too short and covers that aren't big enough to cover you up and keep you warm. That's what it's like when you're, you're fighting against the Lord. Well, it says here, you're making these agreements to, to protect yourself from the coming invasion, but the bed you're making is too short. It's not even going to cover you effectively. In fact, Jerusalem would become a continual tramping place where it would just be one after another trampling over it again and again and again. All throughout the ages, we've seen this proven time in and time again. Once that cornerstone was rejected, the Romans took over Jerusalem in 70 A.D., from there, it went to, to the Arab Muslims, and after that, the Turks, then the Egyptian Fatimids, and then the Crusaders. Later, it was the Ottoman Empire. It's only in these last days that God has brought them back into their land once again to fulfill prophecy and to prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I like what John Corson talks about this. You know, as, as you know, Jerusalem was making Egypt their, their, their source of, of strength. He says, if you're making finances, friends, or philosophies, your rest and security... You're going to be short-sheeted because it won't be as secure as you think. If any man is weary, let him come to me, Jesus said. Learn of me and find rest for your soul. That's why I'm a believer. All other beds are too short. I like that. All other beds are too short. It's only the one, Christ Jesus. Finally, verses 22 through 29, Isaiah says, Therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined upon the whole earth Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment and God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with the rod, bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with its cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. I, I like that he closes out that verse 29. This comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Isn't that so true? He's our wonderful counselor, mighty God, excellent in guiding us, his sheep, where we need to go. See, Isaiah is hoping that all of these warnings will make the Jews open their, their eyes and open their ears to listen to his pleas for repentance. And he reminds them that God is going to judge the entire earth as well as Jerusalem. They cannot expect God to continually bless them without judgment. Any more than you would expect a farmer to continually plant seeds without breaking up the fallow ground by plowing and leveling the field. Isaiah is saying, saying God doesn't want to destroy you. 
He simply wants to break up that, that ground in your life. He's just looking for repentance so He might pour out His love into that soft heart, into that fertile soil so that fruit can be produced, lasting fruit. This is what He's looking for in all of us. And my prayer would be that we would not have that, that hard you know, soil of stubbornness, the hard pride that would prevent the Lord from working in our lives, from finding that good soil to work in us, that we would all bear fruit you know, worthy of repentance. And how's that? Through abiding in Christ, allowing Him to, to water us, to refresh us in the water of His Word, His Holy Spirit, and be in ministry and sharing one with another. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this night tonight. Thank You for Your Word. And Lord, thank You that we can learn of the future, Lord, what, what's in store, Lord, but it also makes us appreciate our present. Lord, that You've saved us, You've called us out from this world to be Your own, to be saved to be saved from this time that's going to hit this earth, Lord, that's going to be like no other time. So we thank you for that, Lord God, for the salvation, Lord. We do pray for those that don't know you, specifically those that we have in mind, Father. But we also pray, Lord, for soft hearts, because, Lord, as you're sanctifying us, Lord, we, we want to have that fertile soil, Lord, that your word can do that work in our lives. So, Lord, help us to be obedient to your word, to, to spend that time in your word, taking in, Lord to be washed in the water of your word. Thank you for the times of refreshment that come. Lord, even tonight, Lord, we're refreshed after being in your word and in your presence. Thank you, Lord. Uh, just uh, fill us with your spirit. Give us that strength to make it through till Sunday, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.